We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me. And you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show where we talk with accomplished chess players, authors, and personalities about their lives, their careers, and how to improve at chess. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters and by Chessable.com. Listeners, as you may have heard, the chess world lost a legend this week. 77-year-old Grandmaster Lubomir Lubish Kavalik passed away. Grandmaster Kavalik was a top 10 player in the world, an organizer, trainer, and author as well. He grew up in what was then Czechoslovakia, was the two-time national champion there. He eventually emigrated to the U.S. and settled in Northern Virginia. Here in the U.S., he was three-time U.S. champion and a U.S. Chess Hall of Fame member. Unfortunately, I never got the chance to interview Grandmaster Kavalik, but the good news is that friend and former guest of the show, Fred Wilson of Fred Wilson Books, did get to interview him on his interview show that took place in the early 2000s. That interview has been available for Perpetual Chess Patreon subscribers behind the paywall for a while now, but I'm going to share it with you all ad-free here once I'm done with this introduction. 
GM Kavalik witnessed so much chess history, and he talks about it a lot in this great interview. As he discusses, he worked with Bobby Fischer in Iceland during the match of the century against Spassky. He worked with Grandmaster Nigel Short leading up to his, his challenging Kasparov for the World Championship in the early 1990s when that's Short challenging Kasparov. He discusses the ups and downs of, the, of that experience in some detail in his interview with Fred. Lubish Kavalik talks about his chess beginnings, his favorite chess book. So there's a lot to enjoy in this interview. You also get a sense for his sense of humor. So I think you'll enjoy this interview. And if you do, please consider subscribing to the Perpetual Chess Patreon page to hear the rest of Fred Wilson's great archive of interviews. The archive is actually only going to be available for a few more months. But it's all there to download right now, including early 2000s era interviews with GM Vichy Anand, GM Arthur Bisguire, GM Alex Vojkovic, uh, Bruce Pandolfini, Maurice Ashley, so many more. So without further ado, please enjoy this Fred Wilson interview with GM Kavalik. And uh, this is from September 3rd, 2003. And I will catch you guys all next week. Hi, folks. Fred Wilson back. I'm very proud and happy to have my guest, uh Lubomir Kavalik, I believe uh, you like to be called Lubash, correct? Well, it's a sort of nickname, yes. Okay, well, Lubash, thank you very much for being on the show. And um, I have, I, I like to start off, especially asking successful and very strong players, questions about their beginning. Um, like, how old were you when you learned how to play? Well, it's uh, such a long time ago that I almost don't remember, but uh, I do. <laughs> uh, I was 11. Uh, that That is uh, quite late for uh, in today's standards. Yes, that, um, that's late for a, a grandmaster. Well, um, yeah, that's true. But I, I was uh, rather fast developing, so um, uh, I made up. Okay, so let's see. If you, you, oh, by the way, congratulations on your 60th birthday. And, oh, thank you um, very much, yeah. <laughs> it, it means, it, it means if you were born in 1943, uh, uh that you learned in 1954. Uh, yes, that's right, yes, in the summer. And were you, like, taught by a parent or a friend or? No, this was in school. Uh, uh that was on a soccer field, uh, when I got beaten up. When I kicked a ball into uh, a chessboard where two kids played, but they were stronger than me, and they were very angry that uh, I have destroyed their position. So uh, I said, "Well, if you need to fight for for your game so hard, then teach me the game." So that's what happened. Oh, that's a that's an amazing and charming story. Um, did you find? I I would assume you you caught on very quickly, how the pieces move and capture and so forth. But now here's a question that I like to ask masters and grandmasters. Did you find that you particularly had to study tactics early like most of us? Or that very early on you were seeing three to five ply, you know, with, within five or six months of, of beginning the game? Well, I, I was pretty good in tactics. Uh, that was uh, one of my strong... Uh, qualities. Uh, uh, I was very lucky actually when I started to uh, to play the game uh, that across the street lived uh, as a boy by the name Michael Janata that was in Prague and uh, 
perhaps you may remember that in 1963 he tied for first in the World Junior Championship with uh, Georgiou. And he started to play chess in six, so he was well ahead, uh, but we, uh, because of him, we just uh, built a very strong team in the school and we won the championship in Prague. Uh, as far as uh, tactics goes, we played a lot of gambits and, uh, and the tactics just became very natural to us. Uh, he was more positional player, and I was always sort of I like some mixed-up, uh, tactical mixed-up. Well, I mean, your most famous games, from wh- whether it's against Gofeld or Portis or whoever, are, are, are tactical, chaotic masterpieces. And it, it must have been very draining, but you, no one plays like that who doesn't like it, doesn't enjoy it. And uh, I was uh, thinking... This is, um, you know, this is a very interesting topic, which you just said. It's... Um, I have seen uh, many, uh, many players who played very sharp and uh, uh, combinational chess like uh, Albin Planins or Drashko Velimirovic, uh, to name two <coughs> great Yugoslav attacking uh, grandmasters, and, uh, and even uh, Bruno Parma, uh, who was uh, world junior champion at one time. Uh, they sort of... Uh, uh, they spend so much energy on these games that they uh, simply uh, planes had to leave the, the game basically and Parma did the same uh, Parma I think became an attorney or a lawyer or something like that but Planets just he doesn't play anymore at all he was a very exciting player in the 1970s yes exactly well I remember I in 1973, he won the tournament in Amsterdam with Petros, and I was third. Boris Paski was fourth at that time. So uh, he was uh, he was an excellent player, and he had uh, many many uh, new ideas in the openings and in the middle game. But he just sort of burned out. Uh, he burned out, right, right. Is he still alive? That I don't know. That I don't know. This is. Uh, I suppose so, but I am not so sure. Uh, he was not that old. I mean, he could be still around. Well, it's interesting. Velimirovic still plays, but not with the success that it, that he had in the 70s. But he, right, right. he, he, he still, still tries yeah. to mate people, as far as I can say. What? He still tries to just checkmate people from the get-go. Yes, yes. This was, uh, this was always uh, his style, and uh, he was always very dangerous. And... Uh, uh, in 1965 in Belgrade, uh, I became one of his victims uh, in a game, I think it was a Felidor uh, defense, which uh, uh, was a brilliant game he played and defeated me. This was, by the way, uh, uh, an interesting tournament uh, for uh, an encounter with uh, Lubomir Lubojevic, that was the premier Yugoslav player after Grigoric, as you know. Uh-huh. Uh, I was, he was a very young boy, I think he was 13 or 14 at that time, and, uh, uh, well, I always noticed that he would come to my board and he would uh, demonstrate the moves on the big demonstration board. And uh, there were others, uh, other boys, but he always chose this one. And uh, and I didn't know about this, basically. And there was only maybe 20 years later he told me that um, he was the one who, who did it. 
and uh, and he said I always fought with the other boys uh, to demonstrate your game because you always run out of cigarettes and you send me for cigarettes and you gave me a big tip. <laughs> and here you thought it, it was because he wanted wanted to watch your chat. Well, no, he was uh, he was very fast uh, actually. I, you know, when you had seen him uh, demonstrate, he was ahead of time, and he was already, you could see some uh, uh, some promising talent. Uh. Actually, in talking about promising talent, you, you, you have a, another interesting description of the evolution of Czechoslovakia and chess after the war. It's that, that after the war, the primary players were Pachman and Philippe, and Pachman was the great theoretician. You thought... You, Suggested Philippe was more of a natural player, less of a of, a, of an opening study maniac. Right. And, but but that that three of you came along in succession that that Matt had to and fi- eventually successfully challenged them. And you know one was yourself and one was Hort and the other was was Schmeichel. If I saying right. that correctly? Yes, Schmeichel was uh, slightly well. He's three three years uh, uh, younger than me. So he came uh, when we were young. Uh, you are teenagers. Uh, you know the three three years uh, difference is a big difference. Uh, so basically, uh, uh, Bachmann was the theoretician uh, at that time. Uh, uh, another was uh, Dr. Max Elwe in in Holland, and uh, he published the what is known the Chess Archive, the opening series. Bachmann published. Uh, for volume uh, of opening theory and uh, also middle game and, and tactics and end games. But uh, Philip was a, a good theoretician, uh, but he he was a more natural player. He he had a very good sense for for positions and uh, for the pieces, and uh, and he would apply a lot of pressure on on your positional pressure and uh, of course he was the most successful uh, Czech uh, player uh, if we talk about uh, world championship qualifications because he meant he uh, twice uh, made it to the candidate uh, tournament in 1956 in Amsterdam and in 1962 he played in the where Bobby Fischer played of course uh, so that was, and uh, then there was uh, 20 years nothing. There was uh, some kind of, uh, uh, you know, pause uh, before the uh, before we started to come on. And that was uh, that was not only Hort, um, uh, myself, and Michael. There was also Janza, and there was also Janata, and Trapple, who was called the Czech Tal. Uh, he was a very exciting player when we were young, and uh, you know there was a, there was a big uh, group of of talented players, and uh, and of course uh, Smekal could have gone uh, perhaps quite far uh, if he didn't have the uh, illness. He had something with his brain, and he could not play chess uh, after 1973. He just for for three years, he was totally out of it. Uh, so if he didn't have this kind of accident, I, I suppose he was uh, uh, one of the most uh, brilliant uh, positional players uh, 
you know, Czech players. Mm-hmm. Hort was sort of scrambling. He could, um, he always, uh, when he was young, he didn't know any theory. So he was always on defensive. He was defended and then he had some kind of will, power, you know, to, to fight back. And that's what, uh, made him very strong. And, uh, uh but, uh, Smeka knew his stuff. He just, uh, and he was a very good positional player. This is very interesting. I guess the new generation begins with perhaps the Tajnik. Uh, yeah, that was uh, Tajnik was after that. This was uh, a player I didn't really know until uh, I came with Mark Deason to uh, to the Junior World Championship in Holland in Groningen in 1976-77. That was during the new year and. Uh, and actually, Ftachnik was very helpful to uh, to Mark because um, uh, I think in the middle of the tournament he stopped uh, a fast-driving Vladimirov. Uh, Evgeny Vladimirov was also second of Kasparov. He used to be a spy for Karpov, if you remember these <laughs> right, uh, I do, yeah. matches. So he was uh, then already quite a big talent and uh, and he started something like six out of six and then uh, somewhere touching beat him and it depressed him and uh, Mark just uh, uh, was able to uh, to come on top afterwards well you may be interested to know that Mark is kind of unretired he's Doing a show for chess. Yes, this is this is very good that he is back in chess. Yes, yes, I I noticed this with pleasure. Oh, okay, because I think uh, Fed John Fedorovich told me that of that whole crowd back then, Fed Christensen, Mark Deason, Michael Rudd, uh, Ken Reagan, the whole bunch, that he thought Deason was was really the most talented. Well, he he was also he had a very good sense for the pieces. Uh, uh, there was not. Not the big bank, uh, you know, games uh, with with Mark, but uh, he applied a very strong positional pressure. And uh, at that age, I think that's what made him um, uh, slightly better than uh, you know his colleagues uh, when he was winning the uh, U.S. Junior Championships. And um, okay, well, I since I forgot for you served as his trainer uh, also be- before later on yes I was asked uh, there was a program under at Edmondson he uh, basically uh, liked to pick up some talents and uh, give them some um, some kind of education <laughs> so to speak uh, and uh, uh, because uh, Mark lived uh, here in the Washington D.C. area uh, uh, this was a natural combination that we would meet. Uh, I think later on, under the same program, I was supposed to uh, train Michael Wilder. At least uh, he said he picked me up, but I don't know. <laughs> but I worked with Mark for about um, two two years, and uh, and then I went with him uh, to Groningen uh, when he played the World Championship. Must have been very gratifying that somebody you're teaching wins a, a world or a national championship. Yeah, this is this was quite nice, yes. yes. But, but let's get back to you. The, the things that influenced you as an, as an adolescent uh, growing up, I guess, in Prague, uh, what literature do you remember reading that influenced you then? And, and maybe you can even tell us what are some of your favorite books that have come out over the last 
10 years or so. Well, uh, in the 1950s when I was uh, starting up, uh, there were not so many books uh, except uh, Bachmann's uh, books were, were quite popular and he was just starting uh, uh, in, uh, in the 50s to publish these books. Uh, I was uh, sort of privileged when uh, I was uh, 15 and uh, I, at that age I uh, almost won the adult championship of, of Prague. I lost last two games and finished second by half a point or something like that. Uh, but he has, he invited me to participate in some uh, group training he had with the members of the Czechoslovakian student team uh, for student Olympiads. And what we did, we were just looking on uh, uh, on the tournament games. There were probably in those days maybe 10 to 12 uh, major tournaments you uh, you would like to to know about, and uh, so we analyzed these games. Uh, I also did some work on positions where, uh, in his uh, first volumes, he would say the position is unclear, so we were cleaning it up, and uh, for for the next uh, uh, volumes and, and so on. So this was uh, this was the major influence. Then we were getting some. Some stuff from uh, from Soviet Union, uh, some magazines, uh, Shachmatny Bulletin, and uh, uh, the Russian books were quite inexpensive, uh, so uh, we were able to, uh, you know, gain that. Then uh, later we were getting uh, the chess archive as far as the opening goes. Uh, I was basically very versed in openings um, and uh, I played almost anything uh, there was any kind of openings just for, for fun and kicks. Did you play both E4 and D4 when you were young or were you more just an E4 player in, until you got older? I was E4 but I was also I played English uh, I played Red, I played D4 uh, I played everything uh, this was um, it was just fun, you know, those days in the 50s and uh, maybe even early 60s, uh, uh, you could do this. You didn't have to specialize. Uh, uh, the, it was not like, you know, you have so much information these days and uh, there could be a danger around every corner, every move, and uh, you have to uh, basically acknowledge that... Uh, you know, you have to uh, narrow your ambitions uh, in the opening. So, uh, but those days we could play almost anything, uh, and I did. And I think this is this is what uh, uh, helps you to uh, to develop as a player. So you get all kind of different positions from different openings, and uh, and it's more fun. It's uh, it's like, you know, if you play the exchange variation of Rui Lopez or the, on second move C3 against the Sicilian, uh, well, okay, you can live, but uh, it's boring. <laughs> I, I see what you're saying. So the information explosion um, 
may contribute to people almost specializing too much. They don't experiment enough. Well, there were specialists in, um, uh, in the 60s also. Um, for example, in 1963, I played a zonal tournament uh, with Portish and Ben Larsen. And Portish used to, I was noticing that he used to come to tournaments uh, in a, a very different way. So, for example, he would come to one tournament and he would choose only the French against E4. Then in the next tournament he would play Sicilian uh, and Paulsen. And then next tournament he would play E5 against E4. So, uh, he, this way he just kept... Uh, Current with uh, with a lot of opening uh, theory, and it was possible because there were not so many tournaments and not so many games to or important games to remember. I remember in 1965 uh, uh, the Yugoslavs started uh, uh, a year afterwards. I mean, in 66 they started the, what is known now the chess informant, uh, but in 1960. 465, they were playing uh, matches against Soviet Union, and Yugoslavia and Soviet Union in those days uh, were the two leading uh, chess countries. And uh, they have published uh, some kind of uh, booklet of uh, very important games, uh, what happened in the last year, as a preparation against the Soviets. And then uh, later on, they tried to commercialize this. They published a, a little booklet, but it was a larger booklet. And from that, that was the pre-informant uh, book, uh, uh, and then it became Chess Informant, which is now read uh, worldwide. I think I remember. It, it looks like it's almost a mimeograph thing with about five or 600 games. Yes, yes, exactly. And uh, it's the precursor of Informant. It's like it covers 1964-65, and it's, uh, it, right. it, it looks like an Informant before Informant. And I, I've seen it. It's an interesting collection of games, too. Yes, not, yes. Not all of them get in the database, well, except for your database. Uh, in fact, maybe we should move on to that. You um, were involved in, in one of the uh, assaults on, on, on Mount Kasparov. Uh, you were Nigel Short's trainer, I guess, for a year and a half or two years. And well, yeah, three years. Yeah. Three years. Yeah. You helped him beat, I think, Spielman? Well, first of all, I was asked to uh, to be his second in the uh, for the Manila Interzonal. That's 1990. Right. That's, yeah, that's, that's where we started. We started basically here in April 1990. Uh, he would come, he would fly here, he had some sponsor too. I might, might tell people that Lubas lives in Reston, Virginia and, and has for many years, I guess maybe 25 years or so. And you have a nice home and it's kind of a peaceful, quiet place to study and work. Yes, yes. Uh, well, we have moved here uh, since, uh, well, in 1974. So, uh, and uh, we are quite happy here because the, the place is, uh, when I was... Uh, having uh, a playing career when I played more tournaments, so this was a good place to come back and rest and, uh, you know, get new energy for games. So uh, in 1990, I, well, I was asked uh, by Nigel Short if I would work with him, and we went to Manila uh, 
where he uh, basically he had to win the last game against uh, uh, Gurevich. Uh, that's now the Belgian Michael Gurevich. A very famous game. Maybe you should describe even your preparation for it and his approach to it. He had to win with black. That's right. Yeah, that's what he had to do. And uh, and like Mark Deason uh, in the last game in Groningen in '77 in January, uh, Nigel was sort of panicking too. He was he didn't know what what to do. And there was the problem was that Gurevich um, played one variation uh, over and over again uh, with D4 and and so on. And Nigel didn't know what what to do, and I showed him a little trap <laughs> uh, where he could have, uh, you know, trap uh, Gurevich clean if um, if it went that way. Uh, it's it really doesn't matter, you know, whether the trap is good or not. Uh, when you are coaching, you do uh, basically a uh, lot of things to bring confidence uh, to your player. And that sort of uh, uh, made uh, Nigel happy, and um, and uh, he stopped uh, thinking negatively about uh, about the game. And then when Gurevich played e4, Nigel played e6. That was then, and Gurevich went for the French, which he doesn't play uh, too often. And uh, after, after and on the third move, he chose the exchange variation. And it was still not his position, and he got terribly outplayed. Uh, also, he was uh, one of the uh, leading players in the world at that time, maybe in the top 10 or 15 for sure. But he was uh, quite uh, well outplayed. And uh, it's quite interesting uh, uh, what happened. And since that, the career of Niger short rocketed up and uh, Gurevich uh, could not move forward. It was just uh, basically uh, one game uh, decided his career. It's, it's, it's interesting, Lubash, that the Andy, Andy Soltis about a year ago wrote a column saying basically the same thing. One ga- game can, can destroy a man's career. Well, if you let it, if you don't have strong character to fight it. <laughs> Apparently, he's making a small comeback. He seems to be very good in, in, in quick chess, Gurevich. Yes, well, he's a very strong player, but I think that as far as uh, uh, world championship ambitions and, and so on, um, I think that's gone. That's not there anymore. No, I, I would fully agree. And he he went for a drawish variation, but, but one... Even as a grandmaster, he wasn't that familiar with how to play this relatively simple position. Yeah, it was in exchange French, but um, okay. So you get uh, slightly worse bishop, and uh, but you still you still play. But uh, then you know a lot of factors come into play, uh, and Nigel was sort of uh, you know in a free spirit, and uh, Gurevich knew there was a pressure because. Um, you know, if he lost, then um, he would be out of it. So um, there are a lot of factors which play a role during uh, an important game. Uh, that was very important for, for Nigel. Well, then Nigel retains you now that he's in the World Championship matches. And I think um, he beat Spielman. 
Well, yes. Afterwards, he he went through. This was actually the decision, uh, you know, to to work with me was that in the uh, last World Championship qualification, he got beaten by Spielman, and uh, uh, so then he was supposed to play him again, and so we started to work on it. And uh, and in that match, uh, there was a well, I. I can oversimplify this, but uh, let's say Spielman is a diagonal player. He likes to put bishops on the diagonals and, and so on. So uh, I basically invented a strategy of his own medicine, and I taught uh, uh, Nigel the Greenfield Indian where he would have the bishop on a long diagonal, and uh, and then you know. Uh, uh, Jonathan would have to look at it and uh, would hate it, basically. And this is what what happened. This was uh, basically that he got the diagonal treatment in in the match, and uh, it was uh, always in a match there is some kind of break uh, break point. Uh, there was a situation where Nigel was almost giving up, but uh, fortunately he didn't. And, uh, and then in the playoff he outplayed uh, Spielman. So that that was um, that was the, his breakthrough to being able to beat Karpov and Timmer. Well, he made uh, no. In the, I think in 1991 uh, he faced uh, Boris Gelfantin. Ah, right. Uh, in uh, Brussels. Right. And and that was an interesting match because. Uh, Gelfand brought all the theoreticians like uh, Khalifman and Usman and, and so on. There was the, the Belarusian team uh, known for uh, for some good opening uh, knowledge, plus Khalifman, as I mentioned, that he is also quite well-known theoretician. And uh, and Nigel uh, worked uh, on on one particular variation against the neither of his John Nunn, I was to move F4. They started to work on it, and uh-huh. uh, and they had some kind of disagreement, which I find out uh, during the first game that when they were looking at this variation, John wanted to play one move, and Nigel wanted to play a different move, and uh, Nigel lost terribly, and so I I forbid him to play the open Sicilian. <laughs> I switched him into the uh, Grand Prix attack, and uh, Gelfand got uh, beaten terribly in that uh, uh, that game, and he never touched the Sicilian uh, defense again, which was very important because he started to play. Um, uh, he played the Berlin defense in, in Spanish, and but that was not his style. Basically, he, we threw him away from uh, from his strengths and. Uh, and uh, then Nigel was able to to win the match. So uh, sometimes it's important to take you know the main weapon uh, from your opponent. Well, I, I know if you're able to do it. It, it sounds to this sounds like Gary Kasparov would, would say that you beat Gelfan with the the, the the not the principal variations, but he but Gelfan wasn't able to cope with the the less principled variations. Uh, yeah, this I is true. Against well, Harry, this is... you guys made the decision. You're, you're going to go at his night off and try and beat it. You're not going to try and beat him with the Grand Prix attack, the close Sicilian, any um, 
uh, Nigel had a funny name for them. Uh, it wasn't shady. Shady. It was like uh, hokey or uh, or um, uh, it was a funny English term he used for the anti-Sicilian systems outside of the, the open Sicilian. Well, uh, no, I basically it, it doesn't matter. You you want to go to the match uh, with a uh, few options, um, and uh, and this is uh, always you know that. Uh, there are uh, there is a different way of of, of coaching. Uh, um, there are guys who prepare uh, quite well. Uh, they invent training positions. This is Dvoretsky's uh, uh, main strength, basically. But uh, when it comes to matches, when you need a little psychology and switching uh, at the right moment and. Uh, uh, seeing that, uh, you know, the way you are going is not exactly, uh, the way you should and, uh, and, uh, looking what your opponent is doing and applying different tactics, uh, uh, that is, uh, that is a different type of coaching which, uh, I think I, I was successful with Nigel that, uh, sometimes I, I would, and he was very good at this, I have to admit, because he was, uh, willing to to, to take on new openings, he was willing to uh, to learn, you know, everything uh, new. He learned in the course of these three years, Greenfield in the end. And, uh, well, that's I forgot that. The Nigel is basically a a kind of Queens Gambit decline Nimzo Indian player. Yes, this is true. And when we had we had openings uh, for each player, so for example. Um, against Karpov, it was the uh, Queen's Gambit accepted. Uh-huh. Except, you know, sometimes um, you calculate. I had some kind of uh, rules and and so on that, for example, you cannot play uh, three times the opening uh, because you would be sort of detected. The weaknesses will be detected and and so on. So you have to switch. So I we figured out that we have. Um, with Karpov, one game to give him. <laughs> it sounds funny, but um, so we said, well, one one opening, something crazy. Okay, we can try. It doesn't matter because uh, otherwise um, my rule would not work. So uh, we had chosen the Budapest Gambit, <laughs> uh, and, like and we gave him the present in the first game, basically. Right, right, right. It's, it's probably well. At least you found out it. Might be the wrong guy to try that again. Well, I don't know. You just sort of knew it. The game was not so clear for for some time. But basically, if there is one one free opening or or game where you you don't have, you know, you you can sort of try whatever you want. That was it. And the Budapest Gambit was not very. Uh, not quite bad. I think it's um, it's interesting gambit, but uh, it also may have confused them. Then they then they go home to study the Budapest, but they never see it again. Yeah, this is true. That's uh, that's uh, that's another way, you know, how to do it. But of course, in all these matches, uh, luck plays uh, uh, a big role, and I can tell you perhaps the the secret behind Nigel's uh, uh, victory in against Karpov. It was at one point uh, I have uh, noticed that we may be running uh, out of openings if he starts to play e4, and uh, 
And I said, well, Nigel, maybe, you know, we can try something like the Sicilian Rouser. And, uh, uh, you know, I played it against Karpov in Bugoino, and uh, I got good position, but I lost uh, later on. That was not fault of the opening. But I thought that, you know, he, he would not feel quite comfortable there. So I was, uh, uh, I basically uh, asked him to look at the Podjebrady uh, variation, Knight, Knight B3 in the Sicilian Rouser. And he was uh, sort of um, studying it and we were looking on games and so on from the Black's point of view. Now, Karpov, okay, they played the, game, the match and uh, uh, Karpov is down by one point. Uh, there is the last tenth game. He's black. And Nigel comes to the board and plays E4. And suddenly comes Sicilian. And he plays straight into the Podjebrady variation with the black pieces, which uh, Nigel at that moment knew what is the best and, and so on, because he studied it with reverse color. So this is an extreme luck which uh, you could not, uh, you know, predict. I, th I think that it was Yepishin, Vladimir Yepishin, who basically uh, convinced Karpov that this is a good way to try it. But uh, unfortunately, he was unlucky because uh, uh, because uh, of the situation we had here in Reston. Well, that's very, very interesting. So he walked right into. He played something Nigel, Nigel himself was considering playing under certain circumstances. Yes, uh, Nigel was considering to playing with black, and, uh, and, and suddenly Karpov plays the same thing with black. So Nigel knew what uh, were these uh, uh, dangerous moments and uh, dangerous lines, and so he just... Um, well, actually, he, he crushed Karpov in that game, as I remember. Well, uh, well sort of, had a moment. Yes, yes, there were some moments which were tricky, but... Uh, right. But at least, you know, this is, this is a, such a big psychological advantage. Uh, and he, I'm, I was looking at him, he almost laughed, you know, he almost fell from the chair when he saw what Karpov was, uh, was doing. And that gives you tremendous confidence in the game. It's a decisive game. You play with, um, uh, you know, with fun, basically. And, uh, the pressure is off uh, because you know that you know uh, a lot of things about the variation and you know more than Karpov knew. And, and very, so very interesting. I want to, just before we go to a commercial break, and then we're going to take questions to you via the ICC, and also Alex Baboran had some questions he wanted me to ask you, which we'll, we'll get to in a little while. Um, there's an interesting book out of print now uh, called Endgame by Dominic Lawrence by Dominic Lawson uh, who was this journalist who uh, uh, claimed to be a friend of Nigel Short and he paints such a bathingly honest picture of Short and how Short behaved under the pressure of these matches and particularly the match with Kasparov that I think you pointed out to me that Hans Reis said with friends like him uh, if this is how he treats his friends I don't want to be that man's enemy and um, it, I think you might want to contradict a few things that he says in the book. But um, you finally had a falling out with Short, or they 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 let you go, they fired you. 
But it, it seems to, it's not clear from Lawson's account what really happened. You're, you're preparing for four months with Nigel. In the last month, he's getting itchy and he, and he wants to bring in more help, more contrast perhaps. So he brings in Spielman. And then finally, for perhaps a, a counterweight to, 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 to Spielman's kind of wild, anything is possible approach, uh, he, he brings in Hubner, the great theoretician. So Lawson puts it well. He says he has the, the, um, uh, the orthodox grandmaster of great talent and the anarchist grandmaster of great talent. And I guess you're somewhere in between. You're actually, you're really a coach by now, a great coach. And neither one of these people is a coach. And something happened that, that led to a falling out after the first two or three games in the match. And maybe you can talk about that a little because um, I don't think you're treated fairly in this book. In, in the book, they claim that you were just hanging out with Milo's foreman and, and not really watching the first two games. I find that impossible to believe. Because well, um, you know, I well, I have well, uh, Dominic Lawson is uh, of course a very very good writer. Uh, he is uh, uh, the son of Nigel Lawson, who was the finance minister of Britain under Margaret Thatcher, mm-hmm. and so he he runs into high uh, society there, and he is currently the editor in chief of the uh, Sunday Daily Telegraph. Uh, and uh, he was running uh, before he was uh, the editor-in-chief of the Weekly Spectator, which is a very interesting uh, uh, weekly magazine. Uh, uh, and uh, with sort of essays and, and so on. Uh, but he always was uh, a good friend of Nigel. And he was also, he came to Reston and uh, he had seen a lot of things. Uh, I have to correct why was, this was uh, my suggestion because uh, Nigel said, well, maybe the World Championship match, um, I need some more people, uh, you know, to help me. It's it's a big, big thing. So I, uh, I it was my it? suggestion to to bring in uh, Robert Hibner because I was his second uh, in 1973 uh, when he played uh, Smyslov in Austria. Perhaps you remember that the match was decided by uh, roulette. It was it was really actually a disgusting resolution to adjust that. Well, you know, that's... Uh, that's another uh, story. No, that's another story. But anyway, so, and Jonathan Spearman was... Um, was there and uh, and he has some interesting ideas uh, uh, of course in chess so he's an interesting player so this was uh, basically the team the fallout was not because of uh, uh, I don't know because of chess matters I think that uh, uh, the the problem was uh, that uh, uh, the match uh, was not played under the conditions which they wished to be played. Uh, finally, uh, there were loss, uh, less money uh, offered uh, to them, and they were under pressure either to play the match or just uh, uh, get some some money and not to play it at all. And of course, that would be that would be uh, very bad for for the, their image. So they decided to play under less money. So there was, uh, of course, less money also for for the seconds and, and so on. 
So that was the main problem, but um, I was never told this uh, openly. Well, the, the book, I think, misrepresents this. It, it claims that Nigel and his wife were getting annoyed with you because you weren't giving enough time to uh, analysis before and after games. And knowing you, I find that, that hard to believe. I also note one funny thing, that Kasparov tested Short, found out Short was going to play the Marshall counterattack. And then you had prepared him with an anti-martial line way in advance, and he played a different anti-martial line, which did not serve him well. And apparently there was controversy among you versus Nigel and the others about what line to play against, you know, Kasparov's anti-martial attack line, the, the A4 stuff. And um, Well, I could... Well, this is probably getting into details, but, um, uh, but in, uh, basically... Uh, what I did uh, since uh, uh, Nigel beat Timan in February, and uh, and it was known that he would play Kasparov, he came here uh, right away, uh, and then we started preparation. And uh, I think that uh, the idea I had to employ the uh, uh, this, the move six. Uh, uh, Bishop C4, the Fisher variation against Snyder, uh as the main weapon was was correct, and he got uh, many many good positions there. Uh, well, that, there were, that led to the most exciting games in the match. Yes, and it's perhaps even uh, you know the most exciting game of, of the decade, uh, which ended in a draw, by the way, because we know, but. Uh, uh, but uh, that that was uh, this is a different uh, different story. Nigel had a lot of lot of uh, uh, ideas against the anti uh, uh, Marshall, but the the problem was that Kasparov employed uh, Geller's move, uh, which was uh, uh, not to be expected. Uh, the move was uh, to play knight from B1 to D2. Uh, and then switch it to F1 and E3 or G3. Uh, that was what uh, Efim Geller, a great theoretician, uh, uh, basically uh, taught uh, uh, Kasparov. And this was uh, and Niger because uh, in principle he didn't like these uh, closed uh, 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 Spanish games. Uh, then he didn't really know what to uh, what to do there. And uh, by the time, you know, I was, uh, uh, well, it was, uh, by the time something could be done, it was it was too late and I was gone from, from London. Well, I personally think they missed you. Uh, well, it, it's, uh, it's difficult to say because I think that um, uh, Nigel's mind was not really on the match. Uh, I think that he uh, sort of realized that... Uh, was as far as he could go, and uh, of course he would like to play, you know, better. But uh, it was—he uh, was sort of down already. Uh, somehow there was a bit pressure on him, and uh, yeah, the, the one week I spent there uh, with him—that was—it uh, uh, was not like in the matches before. Just to, you know, to say it very shortly. Well, okay. Well, I'm, I'm very nice to get get your version of of events. 
we do know that that your uh, advice to attack Kasparov in his favorite openings uh, almost worked. And um, I have a theory, Lubash, and I'll just run it by you because I was thinking about it today and I couldn't get it out of my mind. You know, it's, it's well known that Korshnoi advised someone that the only way to beat Kasparov is to take out his Sicilian. And it may indeed, Lubash, be that no one can take out his Sicilian. But the man who beat Kasparov took out his King's India and then took out some of his other defenses. And so maybe the only way to beat a Kasparov is to play D4. Well, uh, I mean, I'm asking your opinion about that. Sort. No, this is true, but I think that uh, that uh, uh, Kasparov uh, already was uh, uh, sort of discarding uh, King's Indian after before. Uh, you know, the uh, the bayonet attack was uh, sort of uh, worrying him, and it's true uh, there were not only games against Kramnik, but he was getting uh, uh, some positions. And I can tell you as a Kings Indian player that, uh, you know, you take chances, you take risk, you are cramped, and maybe there are one or two moments where you can just uh, jump out of it, uh, that you get the chance to uh, to get counterplay and, and, and so on. Uh, uh, but uh, you have to you have to feel these chances. Uh, if you miss it, then uh, there is a big problem. So Gasparo basically decided that uh, why should he take this risk when he can play games where he could uh, get more space and uh, then later on he could equalize and then started to play for for win. Uh, so he got he became wiser basically. <laughs> It's, uh, and, and with the Sicilian, I think that uh, Nigel had a very good chance because he's tactically uh, quite good. Uh, and you could notice that Kasparov uh, overlooked some tactical shots. Uh, oh, yeah. Let's say in the uh, Scottish game, uh, uh, you know, in, in one game and, and so on. So uh, I sort of judge that uh, it's not such a bad idea to give... Uh, uh, to give Nigel attacking positions. That's what, you know, uh, we went for. And, and the Sicilian bishop c4 is the connection of short castle and, and queen f3. Uh, that gives you some kind of positional pressure uh, with, uh, yeah, you, you put the pressure with pieces, of course. Uh, you don't use pawns, but, uh, uh, and, but this was, this was very, very good, and uh, uh, it put Kasparov under under more pressure than he was uh, used to. So I think this was this was a good choice. I think that uh, it's not possible to, if you play e4, to uh, to prevent Kasparov to play uh, Sicilian unless you glue the, the pawn on c7 <laughs> for him. <laughs> well, Lubash, on, on that on that funny note. We're, we're going to go away, Lubash, but you stay with us. Don't go anywhere. Okay. You can have a, a drink of water or a coffee or a sip of wine, but stay at the phone. Uh, we're going to go away for a break for two or three minutes, and then we'll be back. And I would hope that people will email lots of questions uh, via ICC to Tony Rook for Lubash Kavalik. And... Um, have about 45 minutes for Lubash to answer questions about his... And anything else you want to ask him in 
in chess. I believe Lubash at one time was one of the top ten players in the world on the writing list. So this is a man with a great deal of experience, and he was, was and probably still is a great attacking player. Before we take questions over ICC, Tony, I have a couple of questions that Alex Baburin, who is next week's guest, um, emailed me to, to ask uh, Lubash. And this is an interesting question, Lubash, and it, it's probably because um, Alex is an emigre himself, of course. He, he's gone you know, from Russia to uh, Ireland. He's an Irish citizen. He said, did chess help you to adapt to the new country when you first moved to Germany and then to the USA, or would it have been better to have a normal profession? And he puts that in quotation marks, normal. Well, okay, okay. That's... Um, uh this is this is quite interesting because uh, when I uh, left Czechoslovakia, that that had to be done. This was no doubt about this. Uh, so I spent two years in Germany, and my only tool at that time was chess uh, to make a living. Uh, I wouldn't be, you know, I didn't even know German at that time. I had to uh, learn it. But uh, then I made a very conscious uh, decision to come here and to study. And uh, I even got a job, a radio job, uh, strangely enough, <laughs> with the Voice of America. And I, so I had a job, uh, and uh, it was only after uh, uh, Bobby Fischer won uh, the match against Pasky in Reykjavik. Uh, then I decided, um, with the help actually of, uh, of the dean of the faculty, uh, Slavic faculty when I what I was studying. He basically said if this uh, if someone is uh, number one or number two in this country, uh, he has to do uh, what he does best. So I advise you not to become a professor of Slavic uh, literature, but uh, just uh, play chess. <laughs> so uh, I still didn't uh, listen to him. I was working for one year and then in 1973 I decided uh, basically to become a professional player. And uh, and of course this is a, a funny story of course it's that, uh, it's mentioned in some quizzes about uh, chess uh, when I was on my way to the United States I stopped in uh, Caracas in Venezuela when I where I played uh, um, an international tournament. Uh, I played the first few rounds. I don't know how many, six, seven, eight, uh, under the uh, Czechoslovakian flag. And I think that then Ed Edmondson called the organizers and asked them to put an American flag there. And the reason was that. Uh, in case an Olympiad uh, was in June, uh, so I could be eligible. So I was basically playing for uh, for the United States before I even settled here. And uh, uh, so to answer <laughs> to answer uh, Alexander's uh, question, I think that uh, uh, I think that uh, uh, I had to play chess in Germany. This was clear or in Europe I was not only playing in Germany but everywhere in Europe uh, for two years but here I made a choice uh, to try something else and uh, and then I of course I decided uh, chess is chess is the profession I would like to 
pursue. So that's how I ended. it. Uh, I think that it, uh, whether I had another uh, profession, I might be quite unhappy about that, uh, looking back. Well, in other words, you, you don't you don't regret becoming a professional chess player. No, no, not at all. Chess no. trainer and chess author. No, no. Well, this I'm, is you know this has to be a happy almost fifty years. It's uh, uh, I'm uh, sort of proud to be involved uh, with chess. That's uh, uh, it's a great great game. And uh, the nice thing about it is that uh, every day you can find some new idea uh, uh, and beautiful things uh, which you uh, which sort of keeps you going uh, from day to day and uh, there's so much uh, material and so many ideas that it's uh, it's wonderful to be you know involved in the game fully fully agree Lubasha. most days my routine is to get up make a strong cup of coffee and, and look at chess for an hour in the morning like my most pleasant hour of many, on many days. It's whether I'm looking at New and Chess, your book, 1975, Y and Z, anything I haven't looked at before. You know that some somebody, well, some some people do this uh, before they have breakfast. I just have coffee. I, I <laughs> eat later. Okay. Uh, one more question from Alex Baboran, and then we'll take questions from Tony Rook via ICC. What was your most pleasant and an enjoyable tournament? And what was the word? Uh, this is very difficult. I think that we were blessed in nine, uh, that we played chess in 1970s. Uh, uh, Hans Ray, the Dutch grandmaster, called it the golden era of chess, and uh, and probably he's right. Uh, there were wonderful tournaments and wonderful places. Uh, it was life was uh, slightly slower. And it is now, uh, and uh, there were several nice, uh, uh, nice tournaments. I think in 1973, perhaps uh, uh, the tournaments in the Philippines were very nicely organized. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, uh, did you win Manila '73? Yes, I finished third behind Larsen and uh, Lubojevic. That was the tournament where Bobby Fischer opened this, uh, it's a nine move, uh, game against President Marcos. And, uh, for, that was the tournament which was also played in the Araneta Coliseum where, uh, Mohammed Ali boxed uh, with Fraser back in, well, later in 1975. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, uh, also we, we came a little bit earlier, so we were invited to the presidential palace and uh, spent evenings with the uh, president, first lady, and Bobby, and, and so on. So it was quite interesting, you know. It's, um, well, uh, what what was your worst tournament? We all have have bad ones. That could be Manila '75. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> you know, that was that was really bad, especially the trip back because it took something like uh, with typhoons and uh, uh, some uh, repairs of the airplane and, and so on. It took me 56 hours to go from uh, Manila to Washington, D.C. Oh, my God. And uh, I was uh, smoking quite heavily at the time and uh, 
and I quit smoking uh, because of that. So wait, maybe that was one of your best points. No, 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 because... Uh, I mean, you uh, quit smoking. Yes, but the the point was that in uh, the year afterwards, we played also in Manila. <laughs> that was the Interzonal in 1976. Uh, I went there with Sian Timan, was my second. And we... Um, and the tournament was going sort of funny, uh, but it didn't matter. On the way back, uh, when we were flying uh, uh, to San Francisco, we got hit by lightning. And the plane shook so terribly that uh, uh, I said, well, okay, let me have a smoke. So <laughs> uh, I stopped smoking, and in San Francisco, I already bought a carton. And so oh, no. I was smoking till 1983 when I definitely quit, so I have an anniversary now, <laughs> 20 years of not smoking. Okay, well, um, you and I are in the same boat, Lubas. I'm 57 and I quit in 1983. Oh, okay. <laughs> and so that's probably the reason we feel, feel well today. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but so now we're both vehemently against smoking, but Tony... We have questions via ICC, not about smoking, but about chess for Lubas. We do. Our first question is from Groot, and Groot's question is, Okay, Lubosh, in 1968 U.S. Championships, you disdained a quick draw from Kim Commons and played a real fight. A similar thing happened in the U.S. Championships between Shabalov and Akopian. What is your take on quick draws? And what are your thoughts about those games? Okay, so just to correct the date, it was 1978, not 68. Oh. <laughs> uh, 68, I was still in uh, in Czechoslovakia. But uh, anyway, I think with the uh, with the game with Kim Commons, I uh, I sort of had to play for win because uh, I was uh, chased by a very talented uh, player who was. Uh, Master Jim Tarjan, and uh, I need that point quite badly. So, but uh, uh, I think that's not the point. Uh, uh, the question is: I, uh, the question is about draws. And uh, uh, well, what what's to say about the draw? I was um, often I would be punished for making draws. Uh, 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 there were tournaments where I had a lot of wins. Uh, it's uh, as as long as there is um, uh, there is the rule that uh, a draw could be made by a verbal agreement uh, during the game. Uh, it's very difficult to to prevent it. Uh, uh, I remember when you know all these periods when they were trying to um, to make uh, uh, players fight. Uh, but they were inventing, they were offering money. They were uh, trying to force players to play 40 moves and uh, all kind of things. Uh, and uh, I think the answer is, uh, well, there could be several answers, but uh, one of them is, um, uh, which was uh, which was told to me by um, one world champion uh, who said, well, if... Uh, if we really want to make a draw, our technique is so high that even if one of us drops a queen, we would be able to make a draw. But um, uh, of course, in the book.
book on 1975 on Lake I, I have mentioned this um, uh, this theory of uh, Mikhail Botvinnik, the world champion, of course. Uh, he, uh, he said that sometimes uh, when you have uh, a very hectic and uh, long games where you spend a lot of energy, uh, a draw could contribute to some uh, uh, future creative efforts. Uh, in other words, uh, uh, I think it's uh, it's nice to fight. Uh, you know, I was on both sides of the coin, and then I was in a tournament in 1975 when I had a book deadline uh, in T side, and uh, I had I, I drew all my games. Uh, which was not the record, uh, I think, Dr. Trifunovic, the Yugoslav grandmaster, uh, once uh, on my eyes finished uh, with 15 draws in a tournament, all 15s. But uh, uh, I am not uh, proud of it, but uh, sometimes, uh, you know, there are circumstances like in 75, I put so much energy into this uh, book on vacant uh, that I was unable to play later on, even the U.S. championship, any, any sparks and uh, so on. Uh, I, I don't think, uh, you know, it is uh, uh, that you can't do much about this. Of course, it will be nice to, uh, uh, to fight, uh, but uh, yeah, uh, players have a choice. Uh, either they show some kind of creativity and fighting and they will be invited to major tournaments, or they don't, and they, you know, make deals and, and so on. And so they basically take themselves out of uh, nice tournaments. At least it used to be like that. Well, it's interesting, Lubash. I mean, you're saying that the marketplace will um, will, will will judge uh, certain players by their fighting spirit and perhaps compensate them more highly. Well, it, it used to be, you know, in, in the 70s, uh, you know, players were invited uh, to tournaments uh, well, on the basis of their creativity uh, sometimes. Of course, you had to win some some titles and, and so on, but, uh, uh, you know, exciting players were always like, welcome. So uh, I think uh, in some kind of qualifications, uh, you don't have much choice. Uh, you have to take everybody, no matter what uh, you know his way of is. Sure, but I can see that the large, the big money tournaments, the Dortmund, Linares, they they can pick and choose amongst who they please. I suspect but, that's why Bolagon got an invitation. Um, he, he is known as a fighter. Oh, he's number forty-two in the world. Who? Victor Bolagon. Oh yes, yes. He got, I think he got an invitation because he's known as a, as a big. No, player. no, no, no. He got uh, he got into Dortmund because he won the Moscow Open. Oh, that okay. Was, that okay. was the quality. So he earned his way into. Pardon? He earned his way into. Yes, yes, yes. That was that was the idea uh, to bring the uh, winner of Moscow Open. But you know, in Linares, that is. Uh, uh, yeah, this is sort of uh, ridiculous. Uh, you know, you have. I was fighting for open prices, basically. That is, uh, that is, uh, uh, was one of my uh, idea when I organized Montreal, for example, in '79, 
and then World Cup in 87. The prizes were shown and how much it was and, and so on. In RS, uh, people get uh, fees uh, to play and you could see that first place is $7,000, which is ridiculous because most of the money is paid uh, in uh, starting fees and, and so on. But this is uh, something else, of course. Well, it sounds like they're working at cross purposes to what they really want. Maybe they should just say first place is 50 or $75,000 and you get no appearance fees and, you know, if you don't want to come, fine. But sure, some people will show up who want, want, want to play for that money. Yeah, well, this is true, of course, but um, some players, they prefer not to mention, uh, you know, how much they are getting starting fees. So, uh, but It's interesting to find out. You wonder, for instance, if, for instance, Judith Polgar gets more than people rated higher than her, like, like Ananda Shirov or someone. But, but, but she is a fighter, so that's, that, but I'm thinking of her being the, the strongest woman of all time. Yeah, well, she is, um, she, she is a history, basically. She is, um, um, you, you don't have such a lady, you know, uh, appearing too often. That's, uh, uh, it's amazing, of course. And, and the way how she plays, that's, um, that's another uh, beautiful things about her. <laughs> yeah, she's got everything going for her. Yeah. Well, let's hope that she wins the knockout tournament in December, <laughs> and Gary has to play her in the semifinals. Yeah, that would be interesting. That would okay. be exciting. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Tony, do we have more questions for Lubas? We do. We have a question from guest 1066 on chessclub.com. Mr. Kavalik, is there a way to optimize the time one spends studying chess to prepare for tournament play? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. You have to put some hours into it. It's uh, uh, No matter what you do, is uh, you have to spend a uh, certain amount of time on uh, game. Uh, I can tell you the you know the the fact that uh, some young players who are prodigies and uh, grow very very fast and become very good players uh, early. Uh, I noticed, for example, with uh, and I just showed that he had uh, gaping holes in his chess education and uh, just missed uh, you know a lot of. Uh, uh, lot of things from end games and uh, and other things. So you need to uh, to spend certain amount of time uh, on the game, and there are no shortcuts. Well, I, I couldn't agree with you more. It's it's the horrible truth. But um, Lubach and I will keep telling people that <laughs> as long as we live. Uh, Tony, uh, more questions for Lubach. Yes, we have a question from guest 1189. Question is, Kovalik, any plans for a book on your best games? <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's an interesting uh, uh, question. I, Of course, I always have plans about writing uh, uh, about my games. Uh, and, uh, uh, some of my better games, uh, well, other writers wrote about them. And uh, uh, but uh, uh, 
the question is I'm trying to find the idea how to present them because there are already uh, some uh, ideas uh, uh, in the past uh, you know with players uh, presenting it in one form or another so I am looking on something uh, more original and uh, I'm sort of you know putting together some material so uh, it's uh, in the plants uh, I don't know what happens uh, later on but uh, it will be a good project to, to do uh, one thought I have, Lubash, is um, you might, instead of doing it chronologically, do it based on attacking themes. And, 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 uh, well, there are many, many things, uh, you know, what you, you should do or you can do. Uh, I, you know that um, I wrote a few books, maybe three or, or, or more, uh, but I was also editor in... Uh, in chief of the RHM Press, and we published uh, 30 books. And I work with great people like uh, Bert Hagberg and and the Saltis, and uh, and then work on openings with uh, people like Norman Weinstein, uh, who is um, now not <laughs> involved in chess, uh, you know, the way he he was before, and uh, and uh, other players. But that was. Um, uh, that period marked uh, I had to give uh, some ideas I have to give away to uh, you know to uh, make these uh, opening books and other books possible uh, so uh, that's the disadvantage of being an editor and, uh, that you give away a lot of, lot of ideas but there are still some which could be quite useful I can certainly see that. Um, RHM books, as you know, Lubash, when Sidney Free died, his estate became difficult to deal with in terms of other publishers trying to reprint any RHM books. Yeah. And they wanted to sell them all or nothing, uh, which is why a number of books to this day have not been reprinted. Your book, uh, The Best Move by Horton Yance, I think is a great book. I think he would agree with me. Yeah, this is this was this was a great book. Yeah, and how to open a chess game is still a great book. Yes, yes. But um, what I would suggest to you is because I'm a consultant to Dover Publications, is that whoever represents their estate now, you request the return of your rights to that book, the Y and Z, because you know maybe perhaps we can get get Dover to reprint it, uh, even though it's indescriptible, uh, or you know maybe something can be worked out to turn it into algebraic. But it's certainly a book that deserves to be reprinted because I've been going through it for a couple of weeks and it's just, not only is it entertaining, but it's extremely instructive. And um, a lot of the games are such fantastic battles. Uh, Portis draws some game that must have made him groggy for months afterwards, like some 95-book game but he's been busted for like 12 hours or something. Yeah. And um, what I noticed is I don't think so many of the games from this tournament are famous. But they are many, many fierce battles. Yeah, this is uh, this is true. When um, uh, the the genre of, of uh, writing tournament books always intrigued me, and uh, this was always what I wanted to do, uh, because uh, 
It's, it was exciting to read about old tournaments, um, Carlsbad 27 or whatever, you know. Carlsbad 29. Before. Yeah, and, uh, so it was, it was great and, and I thought the, the tournament book should be written like a reader if, if the reader is reading it, uh, that he feels like he's standing in the middle of the tournament hall and, and watches, you know, and uh, observes the life and, uh, not only the games, but what the players are doing, uh, you know, between, uh, the rounds and so on. So that was, uh, uh, that was always, uh, because you have stories and if, if you have stories, uh, whether it is a story in a game or if it is a story of, uh, uh, a tra- tragedy, a tragedy uh, about some uh, unlucky game or or a long game, exhausting battle. You have a war between two guys. Uh, uh, this is what is exciting. There are stor- endless stories in in uh, in could be in one uh, one tournament. So that's why uh, that was always uh, interesting for me to to write about. I just just grabbed and opened to page 215 in your book, and you're describing this game. It's actually an interesting little game, Sasanko Geller. And Sasanko needs one draw in his last two rounds, I think, to get a GM North. And he's been messing up after a great start. And now he's got white, but he's afraid. And you, you, you say here, right now I can only say that to play for a win is sometimes easier than to play for a draw. Sasako got a space advantage very early in the game. Geller, on the other hand, took control of important squares on the queen side. This is a King's Indian in which Sasako played a kind of, turned it into kind of a banco system with knight c3 and never played c4. So, okay, once you get a space advantage, the general rule calls for an attack on one flank. In this case, Sasako should have tried something, somehow, to attack the black king. What did he do instead? Well, he offered a draw. Promptly refused by Geller. And then you say, if something similar happened to me, I would really try to kill Black's king. But Sasanko made a psychological mistake. He started exchanging pieces. All he wanted was a draw. But soon he realized he was not threatening anything, and Geller took advantage of this fact. Now Geller could play the game for a thousand and one nights, hoping at the end Sasanko would not be able to cope with the pressure. But it did not take long before Sasanko blundered away the exchange and resigned. And you say he was very, very upset after the game and couldn't analyze with Geller afterwards. And Geller turns around, I think, says to you, maybe, is he really that upset? Yeah, well. <laughs> but it's, 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 it's like a moral tale, even at the club level. If you need a half point to get something you want very, very badly, don't play like a wuss. Play a real game. Yeah, but this is, uh, we come back to where we started, basically, to the game, um, uh, Gurevich short. That's the same story, basically. Right, so it's, and, and, and you don't say it, but uh, you, Nigel Short says this. He says that your opponent can smell the fear. And there's some crucial game. He, he, he beat Karpov from a strange position early in the Karpov match, and he could smell Karpov's fear. He suddenly knew Karpov was afraid in, in, in some middle game. And I think you know you know what I'm, even I know what I'm that what I'm saying at, at my level of average master expert play. Yeah. If somebody's afraid of you, you can sense it. Well, this is clear. This is clear. This was always um, 
Or you could see maybe it's not uh, uh, that you are afraid of somebody, but uh, that you could feel the pressure. And that was uh, quite noticeable when you played uh, Bobby Fischer, for example, or when you played Kasparov. It was not so clear when you played Karpov. Uh, that was, you know, the the, the physical uh, sort of appearance uh, uh, was uh, quite uh, strong. There is sort of intimidating when they yeah, were. Yeah. Uh, Kasparov's kind of a wide, well-built guy, and Fisher was just like a big guy when he was young. Yeah, yeah. And you could see it, it was like uh, a tornado coming to the game. <laughs> I mean, he worked very quickly, of course, uh, uh, and just went down. And then, then you know, then from his physical movement uh, and appearance. Uh, this kind of uh, hurricane-like, uh, you know, way uh, was transmitted into the board, and then you could see the pressure there. So, so that, that was uh, this was interesting. I I was uh, of course very lucky to play all these uh, great players, you know, during the during the few decades. Uh. Oh, did you ever play Fisher? I played. This was a, a very interesting game in Sousse and the Interzone. Uh, it was uh, Sicilian Night of the Poison Pawn. And uh, I sacrificed a knight because I sort of uh, uh, saw what was coming if I moved the knight away. So I thought maybe I should sacrifice the knight. Bobby insisted that we should change tables. Uh, that there was not enough light, so we got new table, we got many more lamps, and uh, the game was uh, really exciting, uh, and it ended in a draw. It was a seesaw battle. The draw was quite short, but uh, there was a lot of uh, intensity, you know, between the moves. Uh, were you uh, white in this game? Uh, I was white. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, the, the funny Funny story about the game was, of course, when I I took a walk after the dinner and uh, and I I met Bobby uh, uh, on the street and there was a street light a street light uh, uh, you could barely see anything and he had this pocket chess set and he said well I was winning if I played Bishop C5 and he started to show me so at that moment the light didn't really matter. <laughs> Was he was he right? He was right, yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, now that's that's still a game to put in your book. Well, of course, but this uh, this is yeah. exciting game, yes. And uh, it was, uh, you know, at that time, the variation was uh, not fully analyzed. It was uh, it was still possible to create some ideas uh, on the board, uh, and that was always exciting. I think that that was. Uh, the, the best uh, thing what could happen to our generation that we were still able to uh, to create some ideas uh, on the board and uh, and get some satisfaction that for example these days uh, you just push some buttons in computer and you have plenty of ideas uh, but we had to go you know deep down and uh, and find some uh, during the play. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. 
yeah, they seem to want to do all the creative work before they come to the board now. Uh, <coughs> or have Fritz do it. Uh, Tony, do we have more questions for Lubash? We've got about five minutes left. We do. We have a couple questions. Um, we have a question from Hangin. Hangin writes in, um, were you a second to Bobby Fischer during the 1972 World Championship match? Uh, yes. Uh, officially, I was his uh, uh, bowling coach. <laughs> <laughs> Unofficially, um, I think it started in uh, uh, during the game 13. That was the other kind of defense uh, that basically asked me to to work with him and. Uh, I don't know, they had some uh, disagreement with uh, Bill Lombardi. So from game 13, I basically worked with Bobby till the end. And uh, I think he never said uh, thank you. It's, that was not his style. But uh, but he did in a very subtle way uh, right after he learned uh, that uh, he won the world championship uh, uh, he picked up chess life and started to play over <laughs> uh, two of my games. Uh, one was with Reshevsky and the other was against Larry Kaufman. Um, and we were telling oh, Bobby what we are doing. You know, it's uh, just we celebrate. We are the new world champion. He said, no, no, these are very interesting games. And then the other thing what he did was that he gave me the first interview uh, after the match. He let, for example, Brett Darak and Harry Benson from Life magazine wait outside of his villa. And uh, we were taping this interview. We were like uh, little boys where he wanted to be sure that everything is there. So after each question and answer, he would uh, stop the tape recorder and look if we uh, taped it correctly and, and so on. Where, where <laughs> and was this interview published? This was a radio interview. It was for the Voice of America, and uh, shortly after I we started, uh, there was a man from the U.S. Embassy who appeared uh, at the door, and he said that he has a telegram from uh, President Nixon, and Bobby didn't want to let him in, so eventually I convinced him that uh, he should, you know, Look allow this good. man to come in, and then what I did was that uh, I. Uh, Ask Bobby to read uh, the telegram, um, you know, and it, you know, it went into the interview, and uh, it is now part of the uh, Hall of Fame. Uh, now wait, has this interview been preserved? Was it recorded? Yes, of course, I have the tape, the only tape. I gave, uh, I gave the Hall of Fame uh, uh, a small, small part where. Uh, Bobby reads uh, the telegram from have, President Nixon. you thought about publishing this interview? I mean, you own it. Maybe if you publish well, it. Well, it's too much work. <laughs> Lubash, we have to talk sometime, because I think you could, <laughs> if you have a tape, you could even produce copies of the tape and, and legitimately sell copies of this interview with Fisher from 1972. And uh, think it over, Lubash. This is history. You are, Fred, you are too... Commercially oriented. <laughs> That's why I have been self-employed for 30, 35 <laughs> years, Lubash. Yeah, uh, no, it was a pleasure. It was, uh, I think uh, we had a great time with Bobby doing this interview. 
and it's something personal I you know I like to to keep but uh, well, it's, someday uh, you might write an article about it and include significant answers to interesting questions right. that, that would be worthwhile oh and get paid okay, for it so you are not that commercially oriented right <laughs> I'm not that commercially oriented alright uh, I think we've run out of time but Lubash, uh I really enjoyed this interview and the question and answer and I really would like to have you come back on again maybe in five or six months or so you think that would be possible? Sure. Well, thanks for having me, and, uh, well, give me a call when you feel like it. Oh, no, I certainly will. Now, this has been fascinating, and I'll probably ask you more about what he, what he said on that tape, because, uh, <laughs> no, it's, you're telling us something that many of us didn't know, that you got a real interesting interview from him right after he won the title. Probably it's, there are some interesting statements by him there. Yeah, but it was heard all over the world. You know. But but at that time people weren't sitting around recording things like they are now. Ah, okay. Remember, this is you know this that was then. This is now. But you know now you should not really record music on the internet. I know, and nobody should record my show, and I'm sure Tony nobody does. But if anybody <laughs> recorded the first Pandolfini show, please send us a copy, and we'll <laughs> we lost that one. But the second I, one. But, okay. Lubash, yours is playing again in about eleven oh five or eleven ten tonight. And at 12 noon tomorrow, there'll be a replay of our interview if, if you would like to, to hear it or tell any of your friends about it. I don't read my books. I don't listen to my interviews. <laughs> well, you're missing out on something because you're very good. Anyway, thank you again very much for appearing on this Okay, show. you're welcome. Thanks, as always, to my producer, Matthew Passy, and to everyone who helps spread the word about the show, telling your friends, writing positive reviews on podcast platforms. All of that stuff helps. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at BennyFischel1. Join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group. You can find the link on the website. And we are back in action on Instagram, at Perpetual Chess, sharing a weekly clip from the podcast. So follow us over there as well. But of course, the main purpose of these credits is to thank everyone who makes the show possible by their financial support. Without you all, Perpetual Chess would have ceased to exist a long time ago. And for that, I am forever grateful and work to continually improve and expand the offerings from Perpetual Chess. So without further ado, I would like to give extra special thanks to the following people and entities. Chessable.com, David Lazarus of LazmanChess.com, Quality Chess Books, The Capital City Chess Club, The Abysmal Deaths of Chess Blog, Adapta Interactive Web Designs and Services, The Apprentice Twitch Channel, Andrew Alharji, Andrew Bach, Anidi Deer, Austin Clough, Benjamin Porto, Bill Sigler, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, The Charlotte Chess Center, The Chess Central's Chess Blog, ChessMood.com, Chris Flanagan, Chris Lott, Dan O'Hanlon, Daniel He, Danny Davidson, David Schreiber, Derek Jones, I am Dimitri Schneider, I am Eric Rosen, Eric Tam, Ewan Richardson, Farhan Thawar, Faraz Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Glenn Downing, Greg Harfs, Greg Shahadi, Gregory Gulick, Guven Manet. James Kennedy, Jeff Martinson, Jens Green, Jeremy Nielsen, John Jernigan, John Rockefeller, John Cromarty, John Mark- MacArthur, Kelly Palmer, Kevin O'Callaghan, King Selt, 
Lucio Casada Silva, the law offices of Stuart Katz, Matthew Feeney, Michael Can, FM Michael Oplin, Mike Zelazny, Mr. Mike Shahadi, the famous Mr. Dodgy, the Nerdnase Twitch channel, Peter Sodi, the Playmore Chess Academy of the Hampton Chess Club, Reuven Fisher, the Seattle Chess Club, Shane Unger, Stephen Kelty, Stephen Martinez, Thomas Stanix, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryan of StrongChess.com, Todd Kennedy, the Vintage Patsers, which is a Chess.com improver group, Wayne Beam, William Hogarth, Aaron Waffler, Ace Viega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Payhouse, FM Andre Terakov, Dr. Andrew Perry, Barry Hessian, Bill Juniper, Bill Moran, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brett Howard Lynn, Brian Mullis, Bruce Scott, Brian Tillis of Palm Beach Chess, Chad Hilton, Dr. Charles Snodgrass, Chris Wayne Scott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalecki, a.k.a. Chess Explain, Coach J's Chess Academy, Corey Budson, Costa Chorus, Courtney Fry, Craig Mallon, Daniel Ginsberg, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Bleskacek, David Brown, David Hamblin, David Cramley, Dalen Shelton, Dennis Parrish, Dirk Decker, FM Donnie Ariel, Douglas Matthew, Dwayne Edmonds, Ed Daly, Emmanuel Langlois-Robitai, Ethan Smith, Hallelujah Cat, Ian Mason, Indrick Ryland, Felipe Melo Pereira, Fox Valley Chess Club, Francis Latart lavoie Dr. Frank Tortoris, Frank Zananis, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vandervelt, Gene Stewart, Gerard Barta, Giovanni Russo, Han Schut, Harish Srinivasan, Howard Vihan, Jacob Kovacs, Jacob Turan, Jacques Perry, James Espenwall, James Banastia, James Muir, Jason Woolham, J.D. Chakrabarty, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, Yep Hoyland, Jerry Wells, Jim Ratliff, John Tully, Juan Almaguer, Dr. John Fallon, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, John Jeffrey, John McMurtry, Jonathan Slater, John Tully, Jose Rodriguez, Justin Gardner, WGM Jen Shahadi, Joel Rocky, John Thompson, Grandmaster Josh Friedel, I am Kare Christensen, WGM Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, Kevin Boyce, Kevin Pryor, Kior Gada of the Lakeshore Chess Club, I am Kostya Kavutsky, Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Kyle McAvoy, Larry Ryforth, Laura Belyavsky, Macaulay Peterson, Mark Miller, Martin Knudsen, Martin Krug, Matthew Passy, Matthew Tedesco, Matthias Plock, the Mechanics Institute Chess Club of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Michael Hudson, Miguel Araspidi, Mike Clem, Mitchell Fabian, Nate Salon, Neil Bruce, Nigmat Malajanov, Nicholas Isabel, Olaf Mueller-Michaels, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passy Passanen, Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Randy Tempo, Ricky Grijalva, Richard Hallenbuck, Robert Tichy, Robert Turner, Rory Coleman, Rory Yearwood, Ryan Berg, the Say Chess YouTube channel, Scott Doherty, Scott McKinnon, Sebastian Finsterwater, Walder, Shane Unger, the Sil- Silver Knights in Richmond, Stefan Roller, WGM Tatia of Abrahamian, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Tom Edsel, Tomas Komanich, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Vishnu Srikumar, William H. Brock, William Juniper, William Peterson, FM Zhao Cheng of of chess1000.com and of course Zhivko Stoyanov. Thanks for listening everyone. We will be back next week with another episode of Perpetual Chess.
Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.